Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I am not joined by Don today. He is recovering from his surgery, which went well, but he just needs a bit of time before he can come back on the show. So, in the meantime, I'm going to be offering up some Muslim history for you guys. Uh, what we're going to be looking at is a really broad view history that covers the pre-Islamic period, uh, we will look at the social structure of the region as it stood before Islam, and then we'll see how it changed with the rise of Islam. Uh, we will trace the rise and fall of the original caliphal state, and then we will pivot over to Egypt and watch the Mamluk slave soldier class take control of the country from the 9th to the 19th centuries. Uh, so that should all be pretty interesting. I hope you are as excited as I am. Uh, but before we get started, let's just briefly discuss sources. So I'm going to be relying primarily on Marshall Hodgson's uh, The Venture of Islam, the first two volumes. Um, this is just an excellent, complete history of, uh, of the Muslim world. And uh, even though it's a bit dated at this point, I think it still does a good job for, for our purposes. In addition to that, I'm also using Paul Lovejoy's Transformations in Slavery and Janet Abu Lughad's Before European Hegemony, as well as Afaf Lufti al-Sayed Marsat's Egypt in the Reign of Muhammad Ali. So with that out of the way, let's begin. The first thing that we should take note of is the basic social unit of what Marshall Hodgson calls the Nile to Oxus region. By that he means the area between Egypt and Central Asia, that area that effectively en encompasses the heartland of the Muslim world. So in this area, the, the bulk of the population lived in villages. And these villages could range in population from the thousands to just a small handful of families. And in either case, it, the population was composed of people directly cultivating the land in the vicinity of the village, or they lived from providing services to those cultivators. There was a constant need for cooperation in the villages because the individual cultivator and his family was not normally a viable unit. They would be unable to defend crops from robbers, and there was a need for artisanal work that implied some specialized division of labor. So, for example, construction, tool repair, flour milling, bathhouse bathing, and the work of barbers, which in this period would include things like surgery. These were all specialized jobs that required specialists to do them effectively. Later, we also see a need for religious experts that occupy the same sort of niche. Um, so, for example, a faqih, who could interpret Islamic law for the community, and then a kind of spiritual guide, which was often someone like a Sufi devotee. We find these throughout the, the region. In addition to this kind of division of labor, we also see uh, combined efforts in the villages. Uh, for example, clearing irrigation channels would be a collective effort, and um, getting in the harvest, especially for those that were uh, disadvantaged, they, uh, they might help each other in, in doing so. Leadership in the villages basically came down to the more prosperous families uh, making decisions by consensus between themselves. And uh, many of these villages ordered their internal affairs through a village headman 
who was named for life from one of or two of these uh, leading families, and they were accepted by the consent of the more prosperous and influential men in the villages. These people would be paid with a proportion of the crop from each cultivator, and that was taken at the time of harvest. And in some villages, the other specialists, like the carpenters and barbers and such, they would also be prepaid in the same way. These villages were brought together in some sort of market, normally a nearby small town, although in the Maghreb, in um, the northwest African, like Morocco, Algeria region, there would be traveling markets which would move from open spot to open spot and perform similar functions. So what were these functions? The towns served three primary functions. The first was that they centralized artisans in a in a single location so that they could provide their services to a number of different villages. They served as a place where villagers could trade their surplus produce for exotic goods that were brought from a distance. So we know that villagers commonly made use of several metal implements of various kinds. They used mood drugs. Uh, they bought sweets and trinkets. They purchased medicines and charms. And they also uh, found use for foreign cloth that was not available in their locality, uh, which they made clothes and blankets out of. And finally, the third function that towns served was that they provided a place where villagers could sell their surplus produce for cash when revenue was collected in that form. These villages would trade goods with each other, and they generally found a larger city to serve as their trading hub. The earliest cities in the region were generally centered on temples. The temples in their cities were controlled by organized corps of priests who controlled the finances, the learning, and all larger organizations. Kings that governed over these cities would need to work with or be from among the ranks of the priests. There are some exceptions and alternatives, for example in Greece, where a body of merchant and landlord citizens would be centered not around a temple, but around some other civic institution like a theater bath. However, these were largely similar in structure. Later, with the rise of the Roman Empire, these cities were replaced by that empire with cities that were centered on an administrative bureaucracy. They would have a governor and a bishop appointed from the imperial center, and this changed the nature of power in the city. So bishops had wide local powers in the administration of justice and the arrangement of civic needs, while the governor held the crucial power, the final say-so. In this way, the city was no longer autonomous or even independent. It was tied to the empire at large and the imperial center. In these cities, craftsmen would produce luxury goods, which would be distributed via trade to the other cities, but these goods rarely reached the villages. It's important to keep in mind, however, that the towns and cities were a minority of the total population. The vast majority of people lived in the villages, and that is also where the vast majority of the wealth was produced. The primary source of sustenance for the towns and cities was actually this agricultural wealth, not the artisanal and trading services that they hosted. The landlords who collected the revenue levied from these villages normally resided in the cities, and the rest of the towns and cities' population effectively were their dependents and worked as their servants or associates to these landed families, or, on a second order, 
catering to those who served or were associated with those families. Despite the revenue gap between the towns and the villages, the towns were in some ways an extension of the social patterns of the villages, the sort of daily relations among families or craft specialists that had grown up in the villages tended to be elaborated in the towns. The towns and cities' clan rivalries and notions of propriety and justice were rooted in the villages, and the chief families in the villages were often allied to town families. However, town life had more differentiation of economic and social functions, which led to a higher level of social complexity. Therefore, there were many institutions and problems in the cities that were unknown in the village, as we'll see as we continue. In some, the ties of the landlords to the country combined the political fate of the towns and villages, and it pushed back against any autonomy of a merchant or bourgeois class. Wealth disparity could become quite severe. Some men were decisively wealthier than others, as individual enterprise was allowed unfettered accumulation of land. Some men acquired more land than they could cultivate personally, and they rented it out to the less fortunate. Many villages rented in part or in whole from others. Some villages, especially those controlled by a single landlord, had a rough equality among villagers that was maintained by periodic redistribution of land to account for unevenness brought about by circumstance or chance, but this was unusual. Wealthier landowners could also acquire funds of credit in the form of money, which they rented out at high interest when cultivators needed emergency advances, for example, for seed, uh, to meet rent, or to pay a tax levy. Once acquired, this debt was very difficult to pay off, as the interest accumulated quickly. Debt might become generational and was inherited from father to son. Many men had no land at all, even rented land, so they worked as day laborers for those that did, although most did own at least part of the land they worked on. Status in villages was rather directly related to the accumulation of property. This is a rough description of the social structure of the Nile to Oxus region prior to the rise of Islam. Once Islam comes out on the scene, do we see any changes? In fact, we do. The advent of Islam broke the agrarian gentry's hold on power. The Islamic movement was represented primarily by Arab mercantile interests, and they dominated the original caliphal state that rose with the Prophet Muhammad. However, gradually agrarian interests were able to reclaim their power. Nonetheless, the new Arabic and Islamic forms of legitimacy that came with the Islamic movement were retained. Newfound social mobility undermined the older aristocratic patterns that were based on inheriting land and ties of kinship. This new mode of legitimacy based on religion was more openly structured, more egalitarian, and more contractually based. Relative mobility and egalitarian expectations were consolidated in the religious law, and the ulema, or the religious scholars, who administered and interpreted the law, remained to some extent autonomous of the agrarian empire. This was all made possible due to the central position of the Muslim regions in an expanding global trade network. The expanding territory of the caliphal state weakened landowners' control of power and strengthened the merchants'. The landowners' holdings were sparsely concentrated, and they competed with numerous pastoralists. While on the other hand, mercantile classes were strengthened by increased long-distance commerce. 
However, in the end, neither gentry nor bourgeoisie could act in independence. The cities were unable to assert control of the territories around them, and agrarian predominance was too thoroughly established for any incipient urban oligarchy to challenge it. Far more than in other regions like China or Europe, the gentry was drawn to the cities while they maintained strong social identification with their lands. While influential and powerful, the gentry could not dominate urban life and instead had to conform to some of the norms of the city. Power brokers from any class looked to what could be assured on the basis of contract and personal arrangements, and this was guaranteed by the political autonomy of the Sharia throughout the Muslim world. The difficulty of creating common institutions within the context of this stalemate resulted in the solution of military government. Lands tended to slip away from the hereditary families of gentry, as according to Sharia, these families lacked legitimized tenure. Instead, their land was distributed again and again to soldiers, who held it so long as they remained the best soldiers around. These soldiers did attempt to establish hereditary families of their own, but these rarely lasted more than a few generations. As a result of this practice, cities could not resist militarization. Their attempts, too, were stymied by internal fragmentation, as the elements of the cities tended not to have solidarity with one another as a city, but rather with similar elements in other cities. For example, members of a particular trade would find solidarity with other members of that same trade in other cities, rather than other citizens of the city in which they resided. They were therefore dependent on common norms throughout the Muslim world, and this undermined their ability to prop up a local authority to combat the agrarian power. Ultimately, it was the military landholders who were at ease in both the cities and the countryside who readily seized ultimate power over the cities. And speaking of cities, was there any new type of city that arose with the advent of Islam? Well, after the sacerdotal city that was based around the temple, the merchant citizen city, which was based around baths and other civic institutions, and then the Roman bureaucratic city, there was a new type that did emerge with the Islamic movement, cities that grew out of Muslim army camps. These cities were centered on the mosque, and Marshall Hodgson describes them as being dedicated to the ideals of Hijra, that is, to coming forth from nomadic wandering, which is of dubious moral standing, to form a single godly-ordered civil community and to share in causing the godly order to prevail among mankind. Each city understood itself not as an independent or autonomous development of its own, but a particular case of the common life of the whole Islamic Brotherhood. The cities were arranged according to tribal origin or affiliation of the inhabitants as a matter of convenience rather than principle. The towns rivaled each other for repute in fulfilling common ideals, such as jihad, the elucidation of fiqh, or Islamic law, and the teaching of Hadith. And a town's greatest vaunt was the correctness of the Qibla of its chief mosque in being aligned toward Mecca. Urban policy in these cities tended to be divided between two poles. The caliphal state, as an absolute monarchy, preferred the bureaucratic administered town, whereas the piety-minded among the population took up the new notion of the city as a Dar al-Hijra, 
For any agrarian power, including the new Muslim state, the city was a place to spend land revenue, and so the residence of an emir and his dependents was enough to ensure the existence of a city. In fact, we see that new rulers often founded new cities throughout the Muslim world. For example, Baghdad was founded by al-Mansur, and Cairo was founded by al-Muiz. Cities would fail, however, if economic considerations were not regarded. The large part of any town was built of mud brick, which was hard to keep in good repair. So much of the time, a great many number of buildings were more or less in ruins. Therefore, it was easier to abandon the debris and move to a new site than to rebuild. New cities, therefore, do not imply increased urbanization, as they might simply be replacements for old abandoned cities. The Muslim population of these cities divided into three elements. First, the emir and his troops and their dependents, including the fiscal bureaucracy, formed a substantial and wealthy part of any town. Their role was more or less defined by providing a military garrison apart from the rest of town, although sometimes emirs might also intervene directly in the city economy, for example as grain traders. The second element was the ordinary city population that was engaged in trade or manufacture or catering to those who were engaged in such work, and they formed a recognizable element over and against the garrison and its dependents, organized increasingly in terms of their several economic functions. And lastly, the religious classes, especially the ulema, who were recognized and supported materially by the other two elements. The qadi, or judge, and his subordinate Shari officers were technically appointed by the emir, but normally he was appointed from within a restricted circle acknowledged by the town, and was able to function on occasion without reference to that emir. The establishment of the emir and the ulema, as we have seen, were essentially independent of each other, forming alternative channels of authority. For some purposes, the ulema represented the civic interests of the townsmen generally, or at least Muslims at large, over and against the interests of the emirs. However, their autonomy was limited. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this little sneak peek at our Patreon content. If you want the full episode, you can find it there, as well as uh, nearly 200 other episodes of uh, good old You Can't Win content. So thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time.